him and his family and AJ last week, and I just asked him if he wanted to come up and give an update and let us know as a church family how they're all doing and how AJ is doing. So, this, you, Chris, you want to come on up? Is this mic on, Tony? <coughs> Can you guys hear me? Okay. So, um, anyway, I just want to say thank you, you know, for everyone standing with us. My, um, my wife and I, we have four little kids. You've probably seen them running around, but uh, a seven-year-old daughter, then a four-year-old boy, and a three-year-old daughter, and a seven-month-old daughter. And um, last Friday morning, my son, when uh, one of our helpers went in to, to get him out of his room, he was just totally limp and not responding and uh naturally you know you'd be a little bit shocked to see that <clears throat> so we called the um 911 and yeah and i'm just i'm standing there holding my son in my underwear you know out in the road waiting for them to come and he's just completely limp in my arms barely breathing and um not responding at all and and i, I thought i thought we'd lost our our son um but uh, the the uh, the firemen came and we jumped in an ambulance and and raced down to UCLA Hospital and um, you know it's times like that where you really feel the strength of <clears throat> just like a, a community around you and specifically a, a community of faith like this and um, Brian was a champion he was right in the middle of meetings at school and and he just left those meetings and said you know. Uh, said I'm coming down to the hospital and, and he was there right when I got there and this is like at eight in the morning and uh, stood stood by my side and yeah, we were just uh, we were just praying together and um, you know eventually my son started coming around a little bit and uh, turns out he'd had a just a massive seizure uh and the the scary thing about that is you don't know how long it had been and because he when we found him he was still in that state of not responding um so anyway long story short uh we spent all last weekend at ucla hospital and they were running a mri cat scan eeg blood and urine spinal tap all that stuff and um he started coming back around um and i just you know I think it's because of all your prayers, you know, they released him on Sunday night and they couldn't figure out, well, he seems fine now, <laughs> you know? And, uh, I was just thinking, well, there's a lot of people praying, you know, and, and even, uh, beyond that, like I said, you know, until you go through a, like a life crisis, uh, that's when you really see who your friends are, you know, and that's when you see just the body of Christ and, and people rally around we had people calling, how can we help with the other kids or, you know, and, and anything you need at all. And, uh, it just gave us so much strength to, to go through the weekend. So I just want to say, uh, thank you. And, uh, he's at home. He, he went to school on Monday. Um, they didn't even give him any medications because they said we can't find anything that's chronic or ongoing. Um, so <laughs> it was a, quite a weekend. Um, but uh, but he's he's doing good. So just want to say thank you for that. Thank you, Chris, for sharing us and giving us the update on that. If you have your Bible, grab that, please. And um, we'll study this morning. Jonah chapter four. 
This morning is our last Sunday in studying Jonah, and um, maybe, maybe one of the most significant parts uh, of the story. One of the things that's important to understand the Bible is that it is not a fairy tale. It does not end happily ever after. The story begins with God calling Jonah to go and, and preach to Nineveh, to preach and call them to repentance over their evil. And they do. And he gets really upset about it. And the story ends in kind of an odd way. Not the way um, normal stories end. It doesn't necessarily end with good news on the part of Jonah. And I think part of that reason has to do with helping us shift our focus, not on Jonah, but on God, and then ultimately where this story points, which is to Jesus. As I was studying and thinking through this week, I think one of the things we'll learn this morning from this passage is that one of our greatest challenges we all face is to rid ourselves of a self-absorbed Christianity. That, uh, a Christianity that views God as a resource for our own personal happiness. One of the biggest threats to our faith is viewing God as a way, as a resource to making my own life have meaning and purpose and making my life happy. And I think that is a deep, a deep, subtle change that can happen in our life where all we care about, even right now, maybe our minds aren't even thinking about God's Word, we're thinking about ourselves. Maybe even our own conversations. They're more important. Very sneaky, very subtle, how self-absorbed we can be. We function quite well, and we thrive and fight to survive of having ourselves in control. The story of Jonah teaches us that God wants to be in the center of our lives. That God wants to move in and be at that place in our life where He is in control of our life. And what that does is it creates within us the ability to reflect the nature of God. And that specifically in this story is the compassion of God. To be a Christian means that God is at the center of our lives and we reflect His compassion towards people. This morning we'll look at three things about this, the compassion of God. We'll look at the contrast of compassion, the hope of compassion, and then the reflection of compassion. So the contrast of it will contrast the compassion that Jonah has with God. We'll look at the hope or the ultimate compassion, and we'll look at how that actually works itself in our lives. So again, the story of Jonah, he goes and preaches, the people repent, he's upset, he's sitting outside the city, isolated, alone, thinking about himself, and God in his compassion gives a plant to provide shade for him, God takes it away, and he gets angry again, and it's a story that ends with us thinking about our own lives. How, how are we going to actually live our lives? Like Jonah, 
or as the story points to the compassion of God. So we'll begin with looking at first the contrast of compassion. Jonah's compassion is directed towards himself, while God's compassion is directed towards broken people. The contrast of compassion. Number one, Jonah's compassion is directed towards himself, while God's compassion is directed towards broken people. Here's what Jonah cares about. If you look in your Bible, chapter 4, and it says this, verse 10 says this, The Lord said, You pity the plant. The word pity there, a better translation would be the word compassion. Um, it would be the idea of a deep caring, a deep grieving, a deep attachment, and intense um, connection with something that has even the connotation of a brokenheartedness, almost the idea that your heart, that you care so much about something that when you lose it, your heart is grieving, almost as if you've lost a loved one. And so we see the compassion for, that Jonah has is for the plant. For the plant. And here's just the kind of the direct and easy observation as we think about how we live our lives. Do we care more? Are we more attached? Are we more compassionate? Do we value things in our lives more than people? The, the beautiful thing in this story is that God gives Jonah this plant. He's out uh, in, a, in an unbelievably hot climate, just like on the most intense, and we can easily imagine this, living in Malibu, but in the most intense, hot Santa Ana day, sitting out in the direct sun, God provides him a plant. Why? For his own comfort. For his own comfort. So we, we've got to be careful here, and we're not saying that God wants to make your life miserable because God gives him this plant. And we can even make this the equivalent of our home or our cars or our things, the things we use in our lives, the things that we have in our lives to make ourselves, make our lives more comfortable. Those are things that God gives us. But the story here, the contrast of compassion is that he cares more about that than people. He cares more about our house, our cars, care more about um, how things are taken care of in our house than people in our neighborhood. And so Jonah, Jonah has misguided compassion. It's towards the things in the world, the things that he holds on to. And somewhere, I think, I don't know, I think my wife read this somewhere, and here's just a really easy way to think about this. It's about our things, the things that God has given us, the good things. And, and it is with an open hand. So your home, your house, all of your toys, all the things you like, hold on to those things, take care of those things, be a steward of those things, but hold on to them with an open hand. They're not the ultimate things. Enough. They're things that God has given us, but never to take the place of God. Here's, let's transition and look at the compassion that God has. We see in the story that God gives his compassion, his love to the people of Nineveh. Jonah chapter, the very last verse says this, chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, where there are more than 120,000 people? We see a very clear contrast between Jonah and God. The compassion of God reveals itself in that he cares about individual people. 
This is the nature of God. This is what he's like. If you want to understand what God is like this morning, God clearly says many times in this passage that he is a God of mercy and compassion. What does that look like? He says he cares more for the 120,000 people in the city. He cares about individual people. Let me show you, give you the perspective of Jesus and how he communicates this. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. Mark chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. Jesus says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? The point is this, the implication is this, that all of the wealth in the world is not as valuable as one person. Everything, all the material wealth, all the material things in the world, Jesus says, you can gain all that and still forfeit a soul and that the value of an individual person is more important than all of the material things in the world. That is the nature of God. That is who He is. He cares for individuals. He's the God that looks at individual people. And it's so easy, just even thinking about this, um, just in the routine of our days, standing in line at the grocery store, standing in line at Starbucks, on the roads, seeing people, when we shift our understanding that God loves individual people, that he's compassionate towards individual people, towards people who are different than us, speak a different language, look different, different skin color, different facial features, different preferences, different goals. God cares about individual people. I've told the story before, just briefly I'll repeat it, but years ago, when we were driving up to Washington, and um, we were on the Hood Canal, a real windy road part of Washington, and we saw this, Karen and I and the boys, we saw this couple standing there, a young couple in their 20s, and they were standing there on the side of the road just at a very odd time, just standing there. As we drove by, we decided, I said, should stop, and I go back, and we look, and their car is like partially submerged in the ditch, and I go to say hi, and as I get closer, I start getting closer to them, I can tell that, that there are serious, probably, uh, methamphetamine addictions. Um, probably, like I said, in his early 20s, and he looked like he was older than me. And I will never forget reaching out to shake his hand, super dirty hand, dirty fingernails, smiled, really dirty teeth. And my first instinct was like, whoa. And I wanted to pull back. We pull back from the dirty people. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I did shake his hand and we did help him. But the point is, is that deep within all of us, deep within all of us, there's a part of us that's difficult to love individual people, to care for people who don't fit our perfect image of the people we should love. Jesus very clearly says that it's easy to love the lovable people. There's no, there's no difference in our lives if we don't love the hard people. 
That is a key distinction of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That we love individual people and specifically hard people. The, combat, the combas- compassion of God is further explained when it shows here that God cares about our condition. He cares about the place you are at in your life today. And this is very interesting. What is the condition of the people? Well, here's what it says. Again, verse 11 says this, that he cares about the 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Well, what does that mean? That is a, just an ancient Jewish way of saying the people of Nineveh were spiritually blind, that they were spiritually lost, that they were unable to make their way that they were unable to answer the big questions of life. Like, why are you here? Where do you come from? What is your ultimate purpose in life? What were you created to do? Why are you here? Why are you here in Malibu? What were you created to do with your life? Without God people that don't know your right hand from your left, there is a meaningless in their life. And so God, understanding where they are, the condition of the people, He understood where they are, and He shows them compassion. Just quickly, if you have your Bible, you can turn. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll just read if you'd like, further explains the condition of people without God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a darkness. People who don't know the right hand from their left, there's a spiritual darkness and in desperate need of God in their life. There's only one place, at least it comes to my mind, of this kind of darkness. One of the one of the fun things of growing up where I did in, in Washington was there was an old military fort built in uh, early 1900s for World War I. And one of the coolest things about it was they had these underground tunnels. And, like a maze, maybe like, probably would be like a nightmare for parents now that I'm a parent. But where all the kids would go play and it would be an underground maze of tunnels that were about this wide and go underground all throughout the fort. And we would go there and play capture the flag and try to scare people. But the point is this. Once you got in there and you made one turn, it was complete darkness. Complete darkness. And you, one of the things about being in complete darkness is it creates confusion. It creates, it creates a helplessness. And I think what this point of this passage here is where it says that God meets people at their place of their need. We live in a place where people, people are hungry and looking for God in their life, where they're looking for meaning, where they're looking for direction. They're looking for the answer of the ultimate questions of life. And what happens here, and even specifically in Malibu, maybe anywhere and everywhere, we just mask it. We mask it with fun, We mask it with relationships. We mask it with addictions and alcohol and all kinds of things where we get to the point where we're so blind and we're in such darkness 
where we don't even want to ask the questions, where people are afraid to even ask ultimate questions of life. And so the beautiful part of this story is that God offers compassion to people like that. That's who our God is. He cares about individuals, and he meets people at their current condition. It is vital for you to understand this morning, if you're in a place of brokenness, that the nature of who God is is that he wants to meet you at that place and show you compassion and mercy. It shows up over and over again. That's what made Jonah so mad, because that's who God is. Look at chapter 4, the second part of verse 2, or the beginning of verse 2. And it says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I took off and and ran the opposite direction when you sent me to, to Nineveh. He said, For I know this is who you are, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting in disaster. That is the nature of God. That's who he is. That's what he is like. And so the story ends not on Jonah being the good guy. No, he ends in a sulking, pouting, self-centered guy, depressed, angry, because he cares more about a plant, he cares more about his own personal comfort than he cares about people. That's not an easy thing to digest. And honestly... Hey, that's, that's right here for me, and that's for all of us as a church. To be understanding that if we're honest, we often fade more towards being like Jonah, caring less about people, caring more about our things. The things that God gives us that want to bless us, the good things that often become more important than people. That's the contrast of hope. We'll keep going. I'm sorry. The hope of compassion. Uh, we won't turn there this morning. But in Luke chapter 19, this is also kind of another contrast. Luke chapter 19 tells the story of Jesus just after the triumphal entry. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone's happy. The Messiah has come. Jesus, just after that, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, 44, tells the story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He shows compassion for Jerusalem. He's brokenhearted for Jerusalem. Why? Because they're going to reject him. And so the contrast, again, is Jonah outside the city, thinking about himself, thinking about the plant that God took away, thinking about that comfortable thing in your life that God maybe will take away to redirect your life back to him, and he's sitting outside the city, sulking and thinking about himself. The hope of compassion is Jesus. I read this week that um, someone did a study, and they found out that for every one time that Jesus is in a humorous situation, that laughter might be involved, 20 times he weeps. So a 20 to 1 ratio, Jesus weeping versus Jesus laughing. What is he weeping over? Broken people who are going to reject him. That's how much the compassion, that's how deep the compassion is of Jesus. 
That's who he is. And he is the ultimate compassion. He was moved so deeply on our behalf that he went to the cross and died so that sinful, flawed, broken people can be reconciled to his Father. That is the ultimate hope. God sends his Son so that Jesus can redeem self-centered, flawed people and change their life and mold them to be more like Jesus. Jesus' ultimate compassion was what he did on the cross by healing broken people. The last part, and we'll finish up with this, is the reflection of compassion. So we've got the contrast of compassion, Jonah versus God, the hope of compassion, the story that points forward to Jesus as the ultimate hope of compassion, and now the reflection of compassion. All right, here's where it gets even better. It's all this really good news about Jesus being compassionate towards us. Now, the reflection of compassion. How are we supposed to do this, live this out? So we know God's compassionate. We know that Jesus is compassionate. How does that affect how we live today? How does that change how we're going to live this afternoon? How does it change how we're going to treat people? All right, so number one, and this is from a pastor that I read this week, um, these four or five things, and then I'll elaborate on them a little bit. So number one, and these are kind of observations from the whole book of a life that's changed by, by grace that shows itself in compassion. So number one, and this gets more specific, number one, don't enjoy or avoid criticism. A compassionate person, a loving person, a person that has mercy, they don't enjoy or avoid criticism. So, number one, we don't enjoy criticism. People who enjoy criticism love to fight, love to argue, love to control, love to manipulate people, love to put people down. We never see that with God in this story. He never says, you stupid people from Nineveh. I've told you over and over and over again. The message is never there. Listen, we have a problem. If you love to criticize people, you have a problem. If you enjoy that, if that makes you feel good about yourself, that's a problem. Never, ever do we see any part of the nature of God or of Jesus that he enjoys criticizing people. The flip side, though, in this story that we see here is that God doesn't avoid criticism. He says to the people of Nineveh, repent or judgment will come. So there is a place, but if you enjoy criticizing people, you've got a problem. The message was this. Nineveh was a place, the Bible says, was filled with evil. And so... Listen, this is something we can all relate to quite easily. If your neighborhood is filled with evil and violence, a violent, evil neighborhood, you want to fix that. You want to criticize that the right way. We don't ignore that. You deal with that and you speak the truth. And so that's what, that's what we see in the story. Don't enjoy criticism. We don't avoid criticism. And some people, by nature, thrive on one extreme or the other. 
you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back, I'm going to criticize you back, and we'll just keep this going. So number one, a life that reflects compassion. Don't enjoy criticism, but you don't avoid it. You speak the truth in love, in gentleness, in kindness, in mercy, but you still speak the truth. Number two, what we see from this story, we see that God loves our local neighborhoods. If you want to reflect compassion, you show love to our city of Malibu. You show love to your neighborhood. So whatever neighborhood you live in this area, we show love to people. We show compassion. We show the kind of love and compassion that we see here in the story. It means this, okay? And this, this bothers me, okay? Here's my little Jonah part of this. We, we live in an amazing place. It's beautiful. We don't live in downtown L.A. where there's lots of people and it's crowded. And part of the reason why we probably live here is we kind of enjoy the space in the outdoors. A couple weeks ago, Tony and I uh, went for a mountain bike ride, kind of one of our favorite spots. And we've both been riding the spot for a long time. And we're used to kind of having it by ourselves. It was packed. I don't know how many cars, 15, 20. We pull up and we're like, what? This, what the heck? Okay, this is our spot. You all can't be here. <laughs> right? So that's us. That's us loving our little spot, our little comfort spot, our little plant that's giving us fun and shade and not liking people. That's pretty much who I am. If I go surfing, I want the waves all for me. If I go mountain bike riding, I want the spot all to myself. If I go fishing, I don't want anyone around me. And here's what it says. This, this, is, this is real. This is a problem I have. Here's what the story says. People are made in the image of God. The more people around, the more it reflects the image of God. There's more of God in the city. There's more of God in a crowded surf lineup than by myself because people are made in the image of God and God loves individuals. That totally wrecks my whole lifestyle. <laughs> we better be moldable in our lives, though. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we better be willing to say, okay, can I make some adjustments in my life? Because God loves people. God loves the cities. God loves people more than trees. We need to be a community of people, a church that loves our community, that loves Malibu, that loves the people of Malibu where we live. Number two, or excuse me, number three. Number one, don't enjoy criticism. Don't avoid it either. Number two, love people in your neighborhood. Love our city of Malibu. Show compassion and mercy to people who maybe are spiritually blind, who don't know their right hand from their left, that are longing for guidance, that are longing for meaning in their life, that are longing to bring God into their life, to the center of their life. Number three, almost done. Forgive easily. I'm upping the ante here on a difficult level now. We're on the, the, the black diamond and the ski slopes or whatever that's called. Forgive easily. 
the story here is so interesting about how God treats the people of Nineveh. He says a harsh word, but then they just repent, and he relents. He, he forgives. That is the nature of God. That is not the nature of us. To forgive freely. We, by nature, thrive on holding on to grudges. You can probably all remember, I can, you can remember things that people have done to you years into the past, years ago. Someone has hurt your feelings, and you can still recall that today. It's possible you're holding on to grudges for years or decades, and you won't forgive people. The nature of God is that he forgives people. The nature of Jesus is that he willingly freely forgives people. He went to the cross willingly, freely to accomplish the will of his Father. There's something about us that thrives on having people beg. Maybe not literally, but metaphorically. You hurt me? Get on your knees and beg. Do something, make it right, then I'll forgive. Let me show you a verse in the Bible that you must underline or remember or something because otherwise it's going to keep you awake at night and cause you a lot of problems. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Okay, we like that part. Verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, if you're holding on to a grudge and you're not willing to forgive, Jesus is saying, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You take, you take the forgiveness that cost me dying on the cross and you won't forgive someone because they hurt your feelings? If you're going to pray so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you. I'll tell you, holding on to grudges not forgiving people is a major crisis level issue that people thrive and they enjoy it. And they hold it over people to manipulate people and control people and they won't let it go. We see a different picture. We see a beautiful picture of who God is. That He is a forgiving God. That He freely forgives. How about you? How about me? How about us as a community of believers? Love our city. Forgive easily. And last, expect God to disrupt your life. Expect God to disrupt your life. This is shown. Turn back if you want to, Jonah. I'll read it really quickly. It says this. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, scorching hot, the worst Santa Ana winds, hot day, that it might provide shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So God wanted Jonah to be comfortable. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when drawn 
excuse me, but when dawn came up the next day, God appoints a worm and attacks the plant so that it withered. The sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he might faint. And he was asked that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. This is the place where he's at. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, Yes, I do. Angry enough to, be, to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in the night. God disrupts Jonah's life two times. He's very happy doing his ministry and he calls him to Nineveh. Finally, he's got some shade during this time and God takes the plant away. Here's the point. God will not let you stay on a path that is self-destructive. God will break into your life. He will disrupt your life. If you are on a pattern that's self-destructive, that's harmful, the most compassionate thing He can do, the most compassionate, mercy-showing thing He can do is interrupt and disrupt your life to bring you back home to Him. He won't let you stay in that path. He will pursue you and chase you and show His love and compassion and mercy to you. The story of Jonah is a story about a rebel changed by God's grace. The story ends with a, an odd twist that he slides back into that rebellious place, pushing the emphasis not on Jonah, but on the nature of God, pushing the story not on a sulking man sitting outside the city, but it points to Jesus, who is the ultimate source of compassion. That we, as we live our lives and leave this place, are people who reflect that compassion too. Four ways, then I'm done. Again, don't enjoy criticism. Love our city. Forgive easily. Forgive freely as Jesus forgave all of us. And be ready for God to disrupt your life if you're doing something that could be harmful to yourself. That is the God of compassion, the God of mercy, the God who loves. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this story of Jonah, a man who was changed by your grace, but ultimately points to a greater person called Jesus who loves us, who is the ultimate source of compassion. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that's feeling broken this morning, that you would pour out your mercy, your love, your compassion upon them. Heal them this morning. Father, I pray that we would leave this place reflecting your compassion. I pray that we would be a community of believers that visibly show compassion that visibly shows, actively shows mercy to people and love people. Father, I pray that our, our, uh, our study in this book over the last several weeks has created change in our lives. I pray for a softness in our hearts. I pray that you would be free to mold us, to make us more like your son, Jesus. We love you. 
We're desperate for your power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.